Very happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Nanette Jacobson, Global Investment Strategist at Hartford Funds. Nanette, great to have you on Forward Guidance. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jack. Really happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Nanette, as we sit here in the middle of September, how are you thinking about markets? What is your, let's say, uh, most overweight asset, most underweight asset, and, and why? So maybe we should just start with the economic backdrop, because I think that's really important to uh, where we're invested. And the backdrop is that growth, as everybody knows, has been way more resilient than anybody expected this year. And inflation has been resilient too. So we're looking at a very different economic picture than we have been enjoying the past two decades. Uh, so we are seeing a more challenging environment over the next 12 months. And because of that, we are actually slightly cautious on global equities. Uh, we're more positive on bonds. Uh, this is the first time we've been 10-year yields are now close to 4.5%, and real yields are 2%. So just a much more attractive picture for bond returns. And um, I'll, I'll pause there. So basically overweight bonds versus equities. Not a lot, but definitely a little bit cautious over the next 12 months. A little bit cautious. And when you say a little bit cautious, how cautious relative to how your level of caution and or um, uh, attitude to take risk during your career is, is, is a little bit cautious? Well, I think a little bit cautious is not as cautious as we were um, last year. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have we were more over we were more underweight global equities than we are now, and like many strategists, uh, we did not expect the economy to be as resilient. We did expect inflation to be higher than expected. So we've reduced that underweight, and now we're close to neutral, though slightly cautious. Do you have an outlook on countries, overweight, underweight, U.S., China, or, or sectors as well? Yeah, well, I think that's where the interesting opportunities are. When we look at the U.S., we see a couple of challenges. The first is that, as we know, valuations in the U.S. are way more expensive than in other regions. Uh, so that's the first challenge, valuations. The second challenge is that the index is so concentrated in a few stocks uh, and a few sectors, and everybody knows what they are, uh, but it's technology, it's communication services, consumer discretionary, and those are the seven mega cap tech stocks. Uh, and they've accounted for almost 90% of the total returns this year. So you're looking at a very concentrated index. And if we get higher rates, higher inflation, those companies are at risk in terms of their multiples. So that's why we're looking actually in international markets. We're looking at uh, Europe and Japan, as you said. But interestingly, international for us really means Japan. Uh, and Japan has been left for dead over the past two decades. And now it's been the stealth performer. So would you be surprised to know that Japan in yen is up 31% year to date? Okay, almost twice what the U.S. markets are. 
So you might say, well, has it gone all the way? But we actually think there's a further runway for Japan uh, to continue to outperform the U.S. Europe, not so much because Europe is facing recession. And obviously, they're very exposed to a China slowdown because they're so reliant on exports. So in order of ranking, uh, we like Japan, Europe, and bottom of the list is U.S. And the overvaluation of U.S. stocks, how much of that is concentrated in A, the technology sector, and B, the mega cap stocks? And I recognize that there's a lot of overlap between A and B. Uh, because you know, I've seen some folks who you know traffic in uh, mid cap, small cap, micro cap securities, and uh, they're able to find some bargains uh, at the table. And I, uh, I, I think it's not as such as the case of twenty twenty one, where every stock was pretty much uh, not overvalued, but overvalued relative to history on on a historical basis. Yeah, no, that that's fair. I think that there are a lot of. I mean, we're seeing a lot of dispersion, which is a fancy term for some stocks really outperforming and some stocks underperforming. Uh, so, really, what you're saying, Jack, is that it's um, uh, it is a stock picker's market. Uh, we really believe that because um, some stocks have been, you know, value stocks, for instance, have really been punished in this environment. Um, and so I see a lot of value uh, in value-oriented companies, also because investors have gotten, even without doing anything to their portfolios, they've gotten way over their skis in the tech sector and those, you know, big stocks. Uh, so I think there, you know, I'd be careful about small cap and micro cap yeah, yeah, yeah. because if we are going to go moving into you know, zero one percent growth, which you know we're seeing signs that the economy is starting to slow down. You don't want to be in companies who don't have earnings, so mm -hmm. um, you need to be really careful uh, on that score. Oh, I uh, did a little uh, chart today, and I looked at you know everyone talks about quality stocks, so I looked at a quality ETF, and I compared it to the S and P five hundred, and it had virtually the exact same uh, re returns, suggesting that. Yeah, maybe the S and P five hundred has a lot of quality stocks. However, that however that's measured, uh, the the quality it's it's a factor. Is it, can can that account for some reason of the relatively uh, more richer valuations in the U S. relative to to Europe and Japan? In other words, it's just better companies. Like for example, uh, oh, uh, can you believe that Nvidia is trading at um, a twenty price of sales and some you know not so good company has a price of sales of two, and the answer is yes, I can believe that because Nvidia um, has a great track record of, of growing, you know, profitably and in new sectors. And you know, sometimes some stocks are just uh, not great. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think you just don't want to be as binary as that. For sure. Um, you know, these are great companies. There's no question about it. They have tremendous earnings power. And if you start thinking about generative AI, which is a big discussion that we're having, um, that really could, you know, the addressable market could be enormous. That could be yet another bridge to a new set of earnings. So um, I want to both defend what you're saying, but also be a little skeptical because the question is, do valuations already account for that? And are they mm -hmm. maybe overly exuberant? Right. And we're seeing that in some of those big tech stocks that they are really pulling back recently because of expectations, A, that 
real rates, interest rates may still go up, which is not a great thing if you're discounting future earnings. Um, And second, that the exuberance about artificial intelligence may be very good over the long term, but maybe over the next 12 months may have gotten a little bit overdone. And remember, we're looking at, you know, PE, 12-month forward PEs of 30 times, 35 times, you know, Mm -hmm. nothing like the tech bubble, but still very... Uh, I would say, inflated relative to the rest of the market. And there's certainly good companies with good business models outside of tech, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and that's what, as a firm and as analysts, we're looking for those uh, jewels or diamonds in the rough that are not being considered fairly and are just being swept up, you know, thrown out baby with the bathwater, um, and really being overly discounted. And so where, what is an example, whether it's a sector or country, of diamonds in the rough? And uh, maybe I'll also ask you about financials, where you had a very interesting piece, I believe came out only a few days after Silicon Valley Bank failed on, on March 10th. Maybe you had a lot of very interesting thoughts about the, the, the banks. And I'm curious how, you know, over six months later, how have your thoughts about the banks, both what it says about the economy, um, liquidity, credit creation, but also just, you know, the sector and and bank stocks. Yeah. So um, I'm glad you asked me that because, again, you know, it seems like what eons ago that <laughs> we were does. in March really and we does. had like a little banking crisis. Uh, so, you know, here we are and financials have certainly underperformed the overall stock market. Regional banks have done even worse. So it's not like the problems haven't been recognized. Uh, The question is going forward, what can we expect? And I am still concerned, as I put in that piece, I said, you know, the really vulnerable spot are regional banks. They're the smaller banks. Uh, And the reason I'm still concerned is because of commercial real estate. So commercial real estate loans, 70% of regional banks books are concentrated in commercial real estate. That's where all the loans are. And, you know, we're just seeing the byproduct of high office vacancy rates, malls, you know, where I don't know if you've been to a mall recently, but except for, you know, a couple of stores that are not exactly booming with traffic. So I think that uh, commercial real estate is still a cloud that hangs over the regionals. Uh, the large mega banks are in, you know, mm-hmm. a lot better shape because actually higher interest rates, you know, the the old adage is that higher rates are bad for the banks because their net interest margins get squeezed. Wait, wait, but- sorry, no, no, that may that may be the old adage, but I was the adage that I would consider the old adage that I saw on CNBC maybe 2019 as well as. 2021 is that rising rates are good for banks. I just wanted to make sure. I, I think what you what you said, I think, is the old adage that rising rates are bad for banks. Did you mean to say good for banks or bad for banks? No, no, no. The old adage was that they were bad for banks because they'd have to pay higher interest rates on deposits. You've been very, very right. What, what I'm saying is that a lot of people on the television channels uh, in 2021 were saying that rising rates were good for banks, but your prognostication was actually correct. Although I would say rising rates can be good for banks if it's 25 basis points in March and then another 25 basis points in September, if it's really slow like that. But a super fast interest rate uh, hike, that is where 
net interest margins compress, especially for the uh, smaller banks or, or yeah. not uh, regional banks, I should say, because the d- deposit costs go up. So, so you know, they they can't kind of hi- they can't hide it. Like in no, a, no, yeah. and they're under pressure, right? They're you're, they're competing with five percent T bills. That yeah. is to me, 5. 5. you know. Yeah. Right. Um, that is the big change in this regime is that cash is really attractive right now and it's providing a really competitive asset for any investment. Um, you know, that said, I actually like bonds at these levels because mm-hmm. cash is great, you know, really short term investment, but eventually cash rates are going to come down and the markets are going to anticipate the slowdown in the economy because of all the Fed hiking and bonds will do well. So the market is pr- currently pricing in a few cuts in 2024 that the Federal Reserve will cut interest rates, not as many as it was uh, when you wrote that article on March March 14th. But uh, do you think that the Federal Reserve will cut uh, not as much as the market thinks, as much as the market thinks, so it's you know, fair value in the two-year? Or do you think actually, no, the, the Fed will cut more than what's priced in? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think at the moment... It does look to me like inflation is going to be stickier than what the market expects. Uh, as you said, the market's expecting, you know, three or four. They're expecting, actually, I just looked this morning, um, four, well, about 100 basis points of rate cuts next mm-hmm. year, mm-hmm. 2024. Um, so this is where the inconsistency comes in. So if they're forecasting more cuts, than the Fed's forecast, wouldn't that mean that there's going to be a recession or something close to a recession? In which case, equity markets are not priced for that, at -hmm. least U.S. equity markets. Or the market is wrong, as you say, because inflation stays stickier and the Fed is going to be more dogmatic about getting inflation down and so they're going to have to hike more. Um, and in that case, equities are mispriced too. <laughs> yeah. Because then the Fed is risking more of a hard landing of, uh, because they over-tighten. Right. Or, or because inflation is high, interest rates are high, discount factor, stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. So that, yeah, so I just, I think it's really... It's going to be very tricky. The Fed hasn't been tested yet um, because the unemployment rate is so low. Consumer mm-hmm. spending is just humming along. And, you know, we're entering a period in 2024 when the unemployment rate's going to go up. And then the question, that's when the Fed's going to be tested. How dogmatic will they be about getting inflation down to 2%? Or will 2.3 or 2.4, will that be good enough? I mean, two point four. That's that sounds pretty close to two percent for me. But the the price of oil. I mean, Brent is close to ninety five bucks. It's close to a hundred dollars again, uh, just like that. What? Uh, so, when you say you, you think inflation will be stickier than the Fed expects or the market expects, and what do you mean? And if inflation is stickier and the Federal Reserve hikes more, how is that an environment in which you'd want to be overweight bonds? Inflation being stickier uh, is what our call is. Uh, And that's because you've got labor shortages. That is more of a structural issue because of demographics, because our immigration policy is tighter than it had been in past years. Um, And you've also got uh, an energy transition that is putting a lot of pressure on 
commodities um, that are going to be needed for that transition. Um, and we can get into that. But copper is one thing where demand is far outstripping supply. And copper is the metal of electrification. That's how you get the energy transition. Um, and then there's deglobalization. So deglobalization is moving from an environment where supply chains are very efficient, uh, labor you can export anywhere in the world, uh, and it is really, you know, uh, takes the pressure off of inflation because supply chains are so efficient. Now, because of national security reasons, trade tensions, et cetera, reshoring means that, you know, supply chains are not going to be as efficient. So that's also a pressure. Those are the structural elements of inflation. Now, you know, that is the really killer question. So why do you like bonds? Yeah. Uh, and it's fair, but I've looked at the past six tightening cycles. And even if you are early in investing in bonds, uh, you are still going to be better off. And that's because the market always anticipates, even if they anticipate a year in advance, the market always anticipates the transition from hiking to easing. So the reason I like bonds is, A, there's a good chance you're going to get that capital appreciation. Number two, it's a really decent yield. And number three, let's not forget about diversification. And diversification is the only free lunch in investing. Um, and I still believe that bonds will provide that diversification if equities sell off. Okay. So you do think the Federal Reserve will cut eventually. So even, even though inflation will prove sticky, sticky for six months a year, because I mean, if you have a, well, you, you, do, you did say it was a secular case. I mean, five years inflation being high, that could mean that, uh, you know, the new, uh, let's say, what's it called? Um, neutral rate is 5.5%. So, you know, we, we don't move at all. And the two year is, you know, as you know, lower than that. The ten years lower than that. So, uh, the, the there will be cap, capital de depreciation as as the the cuts that are priced in just right. don't come to fruition. No, I hear what you're saying, Jack, but I still think that markets are not status quo. Mm -hmm. So, if inflation proves stickier, the Fed is going to have to do more, and there's going to be some tipping point at which the Fed does too much. And the economy responds maybe with a lag, but eventually the economy is going to slow down because that's the only way you can get inflation down. Got it. So, so you're, you're convinced that there will be a cutting cycle that will be a slowdown, if not a, a recession, um, that will be caused by, by higher rates. So this, this uh, secular inflation, it's, it's more in the, ba the backdrop. Right. Um, got it. That makes sense. Do you have any views within the fixed income world? So I, I guess you want to go longer out in the curve, you know, five year rather than two year, 10 year rather than five year. But do you have any views on like uh, corporate bonds or, you know, agency mortgage backed securities, which I, I hear are you know, exceptionally cheap on a historical basis because, you know, Bank of America bought half a trillion of them. And now a lot of banks are feeling the pain. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank owned, I think, I think over a hundred billion of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, or, you know, Corporate credit, I mean, um, bank loans, stuff like that. Yeah. So I do like uh, spread assets, particularly in the high quality area. Uh, so corporate bonds, there, I mean, spreads aren't fabulous, but mm -hmm. again, on an all in yield basis, we're talking 
you know, 150 basis points over treasuries. So you're starting to talk about, you know, six, six and a half percent all in yields. You know, it's pretty attractive. Um, and again, when I looked at the perfect portfolio in past hiking cycles, it turned out that first what you want to do is position in um, a slightly longer treasuries, exactly what you said, Jack. And then you want to flip into corporate bonds um, because that higher income, uh, and then once you start the easing cycle, uh, then corporate bonds actually do better in that environment. So, uh, so it's you know they definitely add to the mosaic. Mortgage-backed securities also, as you said, they look pretty attractive. I think they're, I mean, almost 200 basis points over treasuries, two percentage points. So, um, you know, mortgages are all based on how volatile an environment we have um, because the investor is short an option <clears throat> and that's that prepayment option. Uh, so, you know, I think that probably a, uh, a a diversified portfolio of some high quality spread assets, corporate bonds, mortgage-backed securities, even in the structured credit arena, uh, these are non-agency mortgages. Uh, so I think you can build a pretty attractive portfolio and earn some extra uh, yield in those assets. Got it. Re returning to the bank. So you say you were felt pretty good about uh the large cap you know the the, the um you know globally systemically important banks jp morgan for example uh but you didn't like the regional banks is that did i have that right yes yes prefer yeah. mega cap uh banks to regional banks what's your highest conviction uh view in the equity world that's a long because you know i'm talking to a lot of people that are quite uh you know bearish and or cautious so i you know good to get some long ideas out there I would say from a sectoral standpoint, I like commodity-oriented com uh, sectors, so in the mining sector, uh, and that really gives you some inflation protection, and it gives you exposure to the raw materials that are going to be in very high demand and very uh, extreme shortages. So I like the mining companies. I like healthcare. Healthcare has been discounted quite a bit, and I think there uh, are some bright spots there at much cheaper valuations, just given the innovation that we're seeing uh, in that part of the market. Uh, and then outside of U.S. equities, just looking at global equities, I'm going to pound the table on Japan okay. again, um, and you know, and also active management because uh, you're going to want your manager to be able to overweight Japanese stocks. And in Japan, I like financials quite a bit. Um, they have started to loosen the reins on yield uh, curve control uh, and letting the 10-year start to float up. And that's going to go straight to the bottom line for Japanese banks. Uh, and I like some of the auto, other uh, cyclical companies in Japan, like uh, auto supplies uh, and, and um, other manufacturing companies, uh, insurance companies too, so financials and manufacturing. So uh, do you think they'll stop yield curve control before they would ever raise short-term rates? So you, you would have a positively sloping yield curve? Yeah. So they already uh, took the first step in allowing the 10-year to float to 50 basis points. Um, and the question is, you know, is the BOJ going to hike next or will they do more yield curve control? 
I don't know, Jack, uh, that, that's a bit of a, I, I think that's a, it's a, it's really, there's a lot of uncertainty around that. Yeah. I was way over my head. Yeah. Whatever the policymakers do is going to be very gradual. So that's the other reason, you know, Japan is so unique because they've suffered from 20 years of deflation. So to find a country that actually is cheering inflation yep. is a really different calculus. Uh, you know, valuations are cheaper. And then there's this whole uh, new religion in the corporate market about having better corporate governance, returning more capital to shareholders, uh, paying dividends. So the benefit to shareholders and capital returns is just the, that incremental change is really benefiting Japan. Um, and I know some of my colleagues like roll their eyes when I say Japan, but. <laughs> oh, why do they roll their eyes? Just because, just because it's been so long? Yeah, because it's been just so beaten up and like no hope. And everybody says the demographics are terrible and they are, but they're terrible, you know, everywhere in the world. China's demographics are worse than Japan. Yeah. In terms of their right now, there are a lot more old people, but it's about the rate of change and, and the, the aging. Absolutely. Let's, talk, let's talk about China. Uh, the the country, the market the stock market that has, you know, destroyed more investor returns, particularly hedge fund returns than any country in the world, bar none, you know, it looked, it looked cheap when it was down 40%. Then when it bent down 10% more, it looked cheap, down 60%, down 70% looked cheap. And I think that's where we are. I mean, down 70% based on, you know, what, what index you use 50 to 70%, uh, the real estate market ex experiencing some severe deterioration there. Um, the stocks are cheap. Are they cheap for a reason? What do you think? Yeah, I do think they're cheap for a reason. Um, but you also can't ignore a $1.4 billion, popula $1 population. Mm -hmm. So how do you navigate that? Um, <clears throat> we think that China is problematic from a structural standpoint. Um, you've got this you know, terrible property market, which accounted for 25% of Chinese GDP. Uh, and, you know, what is the government going to do to revive that? Well, they're really boxed in because they're not going to pour money into a sector that got overextended, right? So uh, the whole question of what kind of stimulus are is going to revive China, I think, is misplaced. Uh, the other, you know, concept that's been uh, floated is that stimulus should go straight to the consumer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyone following uh, President Xi and Beijing knows that the government really looks askance at what they term as welfareism. So they do not want to follow the Western model of giving consumers, you know, stimulus. So that's not going to happen. Uh, so the question is, how do you take advantage, though, of this enormous population that certainly has tremendous buying power? Well, we're looking uh, at Europe, the United States, companies that uh, whose growth uh, plans are very much based in China. Uh, so you know there are uh, there are technology companies who depend on China. Mm -hmm. uh, there are um, 
you know, manufacturing companies that and and companies that are really reliant on domestic consumption in China, right? So travel companies, uh, et cetera. So there is a way to play China without being directly invested in China. Uh, still, I think you have to be cognizant of the reality that geopolitics are probably at their lowest point between the U.S. and China uh, since, you know, we're kind of in Cold War uh, times uh, with China. So there is always that risk that there are going to be restrictions or limitations either slapped onto China or China slapping them onto us. Uh, so I think the way to deal with that is to invest A, in emerging markets outside of China, and B, in Western markets that sell to the Chinese consumer. The Why would you say that the returns for the European stock market have been so pedestrian since, let's say, 2007 or 2011, however you want to say it? And you know, if you're bullish on Europe or an overweight Europe, what's going to be different for the next decade that was not true over the past decade? Are you saying why has Europe underperformed for so long? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, I think again, it comes down to the tech phenomenon. Um, you know, short of last year in 2022, uh, technology, quality, growth, since the financial crisis, that is what every investor has wanted. They've wanted growth when there has been very little growth. Uh, and that has really centered on technology, which is a much smaller part of the European markets. So that's the short answer. Mm -hmm. um, going forward, uh, you know, I do think valuations look interesting and um, energy, the whole energy transition, Europe is a better setup for companies that are involved in the energy transition. Europe has more value oriented companies than the US. So if there is some kind of manufacturing renaissance um, and there are subsidies going to all these industries in the Europe and U.S. And even, you know, the subsidies for the energy transition in the U.S. are inviting uh, companies to invest in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So uh, that whole transition and, you know, that's why I think clients really should look at their portfolios and see if they've gotten overweight growth versus value, because you can get more value exposure either in the U.S. markets or in European markets. Yeah, that makes that, that that makes sense. What so I uh, have not kicked the tires like I should have on uh, U.S. fiscal policy or the Inflation Reduction Act (IRA) you just mentioned. Uh, how do you think that impacts things? I mean, there are people who think it, it's going to be such a big difference that the idea of there going to be a recession is just kind of off the table because the U.S. government is printing so much money. I mean, people take it that far. Other people say, "No way." Uh, you know, the old playbook is still in play. Uh, what do you think about that, as well as uh, investment opportunities within the U.S., you know, manufacturing, the other, other types of stuff that are much more attractive than they would be because of the Inflation Reduction Act or other uh, uh, fiscal uh, boom programs? Yeah. So, um, you know, the fiscal situation, let's start from uh, where we are today. So there's a $1.7 trillion deficit. We are looking at $33 trillion of outstanding debt. It's something that my clients are always asking about, like, does it matter? Um, because as long as my career, uh, it has not mattered, you know, because the U.S. still 
uh, has great companies, great innovation. Um, and the question is, will there be any kind of day of reckoning? And I think that, you know, we're facing a tense time, uh, in Congress because the government could shut down if we can't pass legislation. Um, and so, you know, politics are fraught right now. So, uh, you know, will, what can we, you know, what can we expect from the spending? I, highlight that just because the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, you know, notwithstanding maybe the misleading name, <laughs> could be could be inflationary. And uh, it could be really scaled back by, uh, you know, Republicans who really want to reduce that um, because it does add to the deficit. It does add to outstanding debt. It could but, be scaled back. It couldn't be changed. It's not. It's it's not uh, sort of sealed in stone. Yeah. No. Um. I. There are still things that Biden is looking. The Biden administration is looking for uh, that are under negotiation. So yes, it could be a trillion dollars, but it could be less. Uh. You know. That said, uh, there is something happening, and there is a lot of money going toward the manufacturing sector. Uh, and I think part of this is in response to a manufacturing sector that's been in decline for the past, uh, you know, two decades. Uh, so I do think that um, all the spending, all these subsidies, the fact that the energy transition is in part being underwritten by the government does set up opportunities in various sectors. So broadly speaking, it would be in value-oriented sectors. Quality value is what you want to look for, right? Not the stuff that's cheap for a reason, but mm -hmm. the stuff that's cheap where you've got good management, you've got you know healthy balance sheets, and a business model that can uh, that can that can grow. Second, uh, you want uh, to look at certain sectors that again have been really diminished uh, by the exuberance over technology uh, and technology-related companies. Um, and that's the capital goods sector. So, you know, part of the act is going to build chip factories. Well, to build chip factories, you need uh, electrical designs. You need automation. You need uh, all kinds of uh, hardware, software, to build a what we're calling a smart factory, uh, so you know that really puts a new dimension on a part of the market that you know has been viewed as pretty stagnant. Uh, so you know those are the kinds of things that we're looking for. It's it's amazing how much spending has been uh, happening in the U.S. for for manufacturing construction. I mean, building new factories. Uh, Electrical, transportation, chemical factory. I mean, it's it's close. I'm just looking at the statistics. It's actually this year. It's been running at nearly twice what the average is from 2005 to 2022. So I, I think there's a a boom happening in the manufacturing sector that has totally gone over my head. That I'm only uh, you know sort of uh, becoming dimly aware of. Um, you know, many other people have called it out years before before I have. Um, but yeah, I mean, do, do you think this will be a different environment? Uh, one in which 
manufacturing companies, industrial companies, construction companies will do much better than the so-called, um, you know, very high profit technology, high profit margin technology companies that you know sort of dominate the index. Yeah. Again, I don't want to be so black and white about it um, that uh, you know that value is going to outperform growth, but I just think that uh, portfolios. When I talk to clients. Uh, they have gotten so underweight value. That's my mm-hmm. concern. I just want balance. Mm-hmm. I want clients to take a look and see how much weight they have in consumer discretionary, telecommunication services, and IT, right? Those are the three sectors that comprise the seven mega cap tech stocks. And just say, okay, I've done great. Um, let me take some profits and move that into this new theme which really is about energy transition, uh, government subsidies, manufacturing, the areas of the market that have really not, uh, you know, not done well and where there's a ton of capital investment going into that. And it is really uh, could cause a renaissance in that part of the market where manufacturing contributes a lot more to the economy than it has in the past. Uh, So, if you expect a recession, and I just want to say if because I want you to clarify that point, maybe in 2024, late 2024, early 2025, whenever, uh, how severe of a drawdown in stocks do you have? I mean, do you think it'll be a, a mild recession where stocks go down a ton, like 2001 to 2003? Will it be uh, you know, a severe recession where they go down a ton, a mild one where they you know go down like 10%, nothing at all? Uh, what, how, what's sort of your outlook on, I guess, the sort of broad index and why? Yeah. Yeah. So again, our investment horizon is 12 months and, um, we have been just upgrading our economic view, adjusting to consumer spending and the news that's coming in, um, uh, and fed policy getting closer to the end than being at the beginning. So our base case is it's a close call on a recession. Um, but we're not outright calling for a recession. Yeah. Uh, we had been, and uh, we've just gotten more optimistic about recession. If there were to be a recession, we think it would be mild. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's why we still are slightly cautious on equities versus bonds, uh, because it is a close call and valuations are expensive. So, you know, kind of the, still the market is pricing in, uh, much more confidence in a soft landing. And that's where we would argue is not such a sure thing, given the fact that uh, the economy seems to be slowing down, uh, the Fed is not done, and they could soften the economy more. And in that kind of environment, uh, equities could do- go down. You know, I would put probably, uh, you know, based on where multiples are, equities could do- go down I don't know, uh, around. 10%, let's say, 5 to 10%, something like that. Uh, probably not 20%. Mm. What are some of the costliest mistakes that you think individual investors make with their own uh, retirement money or, or savings? Well, right now, I do think it's holding too much cash. I think, uh, you know, implicitly, investors are saying, I can time the market. Implicitly, mm-hmm. they're saying, "Oh, I can make you know five and a half percent, five and a quarter percent, and know exactly when 
to get back into bonds or get back into equities uh, and make higher returns than that. And, you know, I just don't think we're that good. <laughs> so, uh, so I think it would be, I, I think you have to, as beautiful a thing as cash at five, five and a half percent is, you have to start making moves into becoming more fully invested. And that means getting into equities, international equities, bonds, um, and biting that bullet, even if it means costing you, even if you're a little early, uh, because the most dreadful mistake is what people did in the financial crisis is even if you got out in time for the negative yep. returns, you did not get back in yep. when the market soared. And that left people a lot poorer. I totally see what you mean about stocks. You, you, uh, you know, people overallocate to cash because there's going to be a recession because stocks are going to crash, and then they either don't crash, in which they lost out on the rally, or they do crash and they actually, you know, for a brief time, drastically outperform the market and most investment professionals. But then, as you say, they don't get back in. But when it comes to bonds, wouldn't with an inverted yield curve? Wouldn't someone buying bonds now uh, rather than cash, purely sticking, wouldn't they be the ones who are sort of timing the market and thinking that the, mark, the, the, the Federal Reserve is going to cut more than the market is pricing in? Yeah. No, I mean, I think the yield curve could stay inverted for a long time, uh, at least with uh, my 12-month horizon. So again, I don't see the yield curve going back to a normal shape for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Because the Fed is going to have to be, um, you know, more vigilant, more hawkish than they've had to be. Uh, and then, yeah, there'll be some correction, but maybe we get to, you know, maybe the yield curve uh, uh, reshapes to a flat yield curve. But again, Jack, the analysis shows that you're compounding, um, you know, when you buy bonds at four and a quarter percent or four and a half percent, you're getting that coupon. You're compounding the growth in that coupon, uh, right? Maybe you'll miss out on the capital appreciation, but you're going to still have the compounded growth, and you're still going to have the diversification benefit of bonds relative to cash. Okay, so the diversification point makes sense. But what do you mean about compounding the coupon? Isn't it the same thing also true about compounding the the five point five percent in in the money market fund. And then also we, we can put up some charts from these, uh, uh, you know, your, your, your great piece, which you really do have some exceptional charts showing that at the starting point of the last interest rate hike, which maybe November 1st is the last interest rate hike, um, you know, Fed's probably not going to hike uh, in on September 20, uh, 20th. Um, but when you have US long treasury bonds outperforming cash, doesn't that almost by definition mean that the Federal Reserve cuts? Because that's what. That's why U.S. Treasuries, U.S. Treasury bonds do so well. Yeah, no, it doesn't mean that. Uh, sorry to counter, but uh, having done the research, Please. what happens is that um, the market uh, can anticipate the easing up to. I mean, in two thousand, the two thousand four to two thousand six cycle, uh, the market started rallying. Ten year yields started rallying thirteen months before the Fed eased. So you don't need easing for bonds to win. But but you need eventual easing. Eventually, yeah. Yeah. I'm just uh, saying that 
that the cycle is, I, I'm not saying the cycle is dead. I'm just saying it looks different that, you know, the, uh, the timing is different. It may take a lot longer for the Fed to ease, um, but you don't need easing for bonds to win. Okay. That and if you wait until the Fed eases, you'll be too late. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Right. That makes sense. I, I guess I'm just saying that it's, it's predicated on an eventual Fed easing yeah. that will be more dramatic than it's currently priced in. Because if, if it's exactly realized, you're going to, you know, you're, gonna, you're buying a 4% coupon now and you're going to get a 4% coupon. And, and, and you know, the coupon will stay at 4%, you know? Yeah, yeah. But you're also not right. I mean, what you're also not uh, uh, accounting for is that eventually when the market does ease, you're going to be making less and less on your cash. So the True. compounded, right, the compounded returns are going to be at lower yields. Absolutely. But I'm, I'm saying that it, it is in some way a bet on the, the lower yields. And, and when you're saying you, you, you can't, um, you know, don't stay in cash time the market, like presumably, yeah, don't stay in a lower yielding security, uh, invest in a higher yielding security. But I'm saying it's, we have an inverted yield curve, like 5.5% versus the 4%. Yeah. 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 I can see where you're invested, Jack, but <laughs> you want to <laughs> you want to argue this point. I mean, we may have to agree to disagree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Well, I'm just saying that I'm just saying that, you know, you have the benefit. Right. I mean, you you could. It's not riskless. Obviously, all these things are views and they have risks attached to them. And the risk of the bond strategy is that we have higher than expected inflation. The Fed has to do much more. The equilibrium rate of interest rates is much higher. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. All those things are true. Uh, you know, and in that case, uh, it's not going to work. Uh, I'm just saying with, you know, my research and my firm's research uh, and based on history, the outlook seems like you're earning decent returns. Real yields are higher than they've been in decades. Uh, you'll have the benefit of diversification if the equity market goes down. Um, and you're earning a decent yield. Got it. Well, well it's, it's funny that we're, we're on this tangent because when I originally asked my question about what is the costliest mistake you think investors make, uh, your response, which is you know, a very interesting one, was about like right now in terms of allocation. I was more asking behavioral and a long-term uh, basis. It's looking in the rearview mirror. Yeah. It's looking at what has returned the most and saying, oh, that's and extrapolating that for the next three years. Uh, and then, you know, uh, saying, okay, you know, whatever this, uh, it's very hard to have the courage because it does take courage to say, uh, I'm going to take profits. I'm going to be a disciplined investor, take profits in a sector that has performed well and rotate in a sector that has done poorly, but has, brighter prospects. Got it. So if, if you said the earlier in the conversation that so much, I mean, maybe you said 90% of the rally is due to the big tech uh, stock, stocks and you know some percentage of that rally, it sounds like you think is, is unjustified that these companies are overvalued. Uh, would, would you, I mean, would you say that this rally is somewhat unjustified in the entire market? Yeah. Um, just because technology is so dominating the indexes. Uh, and if you look at, you know, I always look at uh, the equal weighted index 
relative to the market weighted index. And, um, you know, the market weighted index has so far surpassed the equal weighted index, right? Because uh, if you look at an equal weighted basis, the market's not, not uh, you know, nearly at, has it racked the kind of gains, um, you know, of 18% or so. Uh, so I think that the, uh, you know, because of that concentration, it is really uh, just overwhelming the broad index uh, uh, numbers and year-to-date returns. So I just would encourage people to look at markets that are more evenly balanced by sector and, uh, you know, by value versus growth. The U.S. is just a highly concentrated market. Yeah, I was actually looking at the, I think, ACWI MSCI World Index, and I was surprised to see that over 60% of it is is the United States. Is that just because the U.S. has been outperforming pretty much all other markets for over a decade and it's not rebalancing? So it's kind of, you know, I mean, so I think it's only, you know, your favorite, Japan's only 5% or something like that, and that's the second most favorite favorite one. Um, and I guess I guess that that's, uh, leads to another shot, which is do you rebalance and kind of the stuff that's been winning, you sell that to buy the stuff that hasn't been winning or not winning or winning as much. Or is the strategy of you've got to water your your flowers and uh, you know pick out pick out your weeds? And maybe that's why S and P five hundred does so well is because Apple, uh, you know, the the, the market didn't uh, sell Apple as it was going up. You know, it just allowed it to be balanced relative on performance. Yeah, I, uh, I think that the high weight in the U.S. has always been a feature of the mm. ACWI and global indices. Um, it's just a bigger market, right? It's all market cap weighted. So, and the U.S. has the biggest market. So that dominates the fact that you've had so much capital appreciation in the U.S. market over the past uh, 10 years uh, is another reason why that's grown as a percentage. Uh, and I'm a believer in rebalancing uh, because, uh, you know, again, it, it's a matter of uh, does the past experience completely replicate in future years. And, you know, at my heart, I rather pick up bargains than keep uh, investing in expensive things um, and hoping they get more expensive. Uh, So, you know, again, going back to my first statement, um, you know, the, I think that the uh, economy has been very resilient. It will eventually slow down. Um, uh, real rates are going to be at on the high side, which is a headwind for, uh, that very concentrated part of the U S market. Uh, and so I think it's time to rotate and, you know, September or October, it's the new January. Um, so you want to relook at your portfolio and, and reallocate. Got it. What would you say the odds are of, and this is not my base case at all, but you, you know, if if you have a parallel to the the dot com uh, type, or maybe you can share your, your your insights from that period, but interest rates were high, and but the stock market and kept on climbing, and the speculative market just kept like I, I'm not disagreeing with you. First of all, I don't even agree with what I'm about to say, but I'm not disagreeing with you that at, like large cap tech stocks are. Uh, expensive and you know some bubblicious stocks that are you know not unprofitable companies are expensive although not as much as 2021 but uh it, it can always get more you know the bubble can always get bigger you know not, i'm not saying that this is a bubble right 
Yeah, and valuations are not nearly what they were um, back in the tech bubble, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you're looking at valuation multiples of 70 times. So they're expensive today, but they're half of what they were then. So yeah, I'm not uh, uh, predicting a bubble. I think, you know, a lot of it depends on generative AI. Um, if it turns out, let's say that the productivity gains from generative AI and um, are really meaningful, then you've got a, you know, I'll just be wrong on my call and you will have a situation. It's the one, you know, miracle uh, on GDP that we can hope for, which is the productivity miracle. Mm -hmm. If you can get GDP to grow more than inflation, that is the way that you reduce our debt. Mm-hmm. and our deficits. So that would be an incredible outcome. And I'd happily take being wrong <laughs> over the greater good <laughs> <laughs> to the economy and to the, you know, uh, U.S. equities, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a risk case uh, that could be, you know, really cause tech to continue to outperform, U.S. to outperform. I, I would say that's really the one risk case. Um, but you know, I don't think anybody has visibility on that right now. And when, you know, the expectations meet reality and at what point that's met with some reordering of, uh, or sequencing and, you know, of time and, and results, et cetera. So, um, you know, I think that's still very conceptual at this point, but that would be a case where, you know, you could see uh, the U.S. economy and markets far surpass other areas. Yeah, I mean that that would be a um, a good situation. I'd I'd happily take being wrong too if uh, if, right. if everything worked out for, right. for for the the economy and and everyone. Um, Nanette, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for for coming on and sharing your views. Uh, where if people want to learn more about your work uh, at Hartford Fund, where can people uh, find that? Yeah, so um, it's hartfordfunds.com. There's a tab for insights, and uh, all my work is there. And uh, I publish a monthly commentary. um, And so, and I think that gets reposted on LinkedIn. um, So all my followers can find it there, or, uh, you know, also Hartford's uh, Hartford Funds LinkedIn. There you go. Thanks again, uh, Nanette, and thanks everyone for watching. My pleasure. Thank you, Jack.